Good morning, and welcome to episode 633 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Perspectives, brought to you by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I'm Sam Miller with Ben Lindbergh of Grantland. Hi, Ben. How are you? Quite all right. Excellent. Uh, and later in the show, Sahadev will be talking to Jason Beck of MLB.com. Uh, in the meantime, though, we have Ken Funk, who wrote the Tigers essay in the BP Annual, as well as most of the rest of the BP Annual. <laughs> Hi, Ken. If only that were true. Hi, Sam. Hi, Hi, Ben. So, Ken, I have a little bit of trivia, I guess, or something that, that you wouldn't know, but um, I learned this recently. A couple years ago, the Tigers' playoff odds were like 100% before the season began, and or something like that, or something close to that, and that was... Um, I, I think for reasons that are should be in, kind of appreciated by everybody, that was deemed to be unacceptable. And so uh, we in, uh, included an extra level of regression into our playoff odds. So when people are looking at their playoff odds on our site this year, when they come out in a couple of days actually, uh, they will not realize this, but they, these odds will have been subtly affected by what I guess internally we could call the Tigers rule. Um, which is that you shouldn't be allowed to be 100% playoff odds before the season begins um, for, uh, again, reasons I think everybody could appreciate. So this is just a way of getting to the fact that the Tigers for the last few years have been really good in a division that hasn't been really good, and it seems as though they should be something like this like powerhouse dynasty that's been running away with the division for 20 uh, by 20 wins every year. And yet, as your essay uh, kind of um, uh, uh, discusses, they they really weren't. They weren't the greatest team in the American League, or they weren't the the runaway team in their division even. There were a lot of close races, closer than you would think. And so I guess I will just ask you, uh, maybe to paraphrase your essay, why weren't the Tigers better? No, that's, yeah, that, that's a, a really good question, because going into every season, you would look at who was on the Tigers roster. You would look at their competition in the AL Central, which has generically been weak for four or five years. There may be one team in the division that would sort of randomly have a good year, the Indians one year, the Royals last year, the White Sox a couple years before. But honestly, going into the season, you know, I didn't have a... a tiger effect that would get rid of my preseason playoff odds going into every season i had a hundred percent certainty i felt that the tigers were going to be we're going to win the central and that's really the hard part in baseball is getting into the playoff dance if your team is good enough to make it to the playoffs and the tigers have been good enough and have been in a situation where they could make it to the playoff year after year after year you would think by now they would have won a championship or done something extraordinarily memorable in the playoffs and they haven't. And that, that to me is really interesting to me. I just wonder what the legacy of this Tiger team is. You know, in, in the essay, I talk a little bit about how, and a lot of people have been writing and commenting about this, how the Tiger's window feels like it's about to close. It feels like they're about to be sort of overburdened with, with these large contracts that are going to bring them down and they don't have younger players to sort of fill in underneath. And so it almost feels like it's time to, to look at this era of Tigers baseball and go, what does it mean? What did, what did we learn? And what are we going to think about them in 20 years? Because I don't look at this franchise as being a team that we're going to be talking about 20 years from now the way that we talk about the, the Reds in the 70s or the Orioles teams or, or the A's teams in the 70s and in the 80s. They just don't have that feel. And it's, it's kind of hard to you know, put a finger on exactly why that is. The Tigers' playoff uh, odds this year going into the season are, are only 49%. And that includes their chances of winning the wild card. They're projected to only win 83 wins this year. So um, you said that the window is kind of coming to an, an, an end. Uh, that's still good enough to, to be the favorite in the Central by a narrow margin. But uh, has it changed that dramatically since last year? Are they really that much worse of a team this year? Well, I think when you look at who's on the roster today compared to who's on the roster um, when they went into the playoffs last year, if you look at the rotation, you no longer have Max Scherzer, you no longer have Rick Porcello. They've been replaced essentially with Alfredo Simon and, uh, and Shane Green. And I think that's a big step back. I mean, Green may wind up being uh, kind of a new Doug Fister, a guy that's a much better pitcher than we expected, a guy that uh, Dombrowski has a great history of trading for assets that people maybe don't appreciate that they're better players than we think and he could grow into being a, a good starter in the tiger rotation but when i look at that rotation today it's it doesn't seem anywhere near as daunting as as the rotation looked going to the playoffs last year um when you look at the lineup you've sort of replaced tory hunter with uh with the uh, unss Cespedes. 
Um, when you go through the roster, you don't really see a lot of places where you expect them to be better in the lineup. This is an old team. They've, they're a year older. Um, they're, they're injury prone. You, you look through it and it looks like they've all been through battle. You've got a, even the young shortstops, a guy that's had problems with his shins. Um, you, you don't really see a lot of places where they're going to improve. Whereas you look at the other teams in the central and they've all gotten better over the, over the winter. So yeah, I think I, I just don't see them being, I think that the odds kind of have it right. The, the Tigers, I think, still are the favorite. But even when they were prohibitive favorites, as you said, they still were just eking their way into the playoffs. They, they had bullpen issues pretty much every year that they never seemed to really get solved. They'd have a few nagging injuries that, that would keep them from being you know, the, the dominant team that everyone expected them to be. And now that they're older and more fragile and less talented, I, I think that, that they, there is no way that they can just sort of coast into the playoffs anymore. We've been talking about this Tigers window, it seems, for a few years now. Even even when they were one of the best teams in baseball, it seemed more more clear, more apparent than it usually is with teams that, that there was an expiration date on this or that we could we could almost put our finger on when things would stop being good. And that timeline that maybe we envisioned a couple of years ago still sort of seems to be playing along as as we imagined. So if that's the case, is there anything that Dave Dombrowski could have done to change the story, to avoid what what seems to be a, a foreseeable collapse? And of course, this is all premature because we are still talking about the Tigers perhaps being the best team in the division. But if this scary future that we are still envisioning does come to pass, is there some way that it could have been averted? Um, maybe. I mean, it's really hard to nitpick what Dave Dombrowski has done in, in Detroit. I mean, he's, you know, well known as one of the best traders in the game. Um, that, not someone that, you know, turns on their friends, but somebody that makes trades very effectively. Um, and he, the one thing I guess I would question, and it doesn't really hurt them this year, but it's why I think people start seeing this big black cloud in the future, was the extensions that he gave to uh, Cabrera and Verlander when they weren't necessarily necessary. I mean, I think the moment when the window opened for the Tigers was when they made the trade. I think it was in 2010. They made the Granderson-Edwin Jackson trade. They They had bloated contracts on the books then. They had Jeremy Bonderman and Carlos Guillen and... Uh, um, the Maglio Ordonez, and he once you, he couldn't move those contracts, but he traded veteran players that were cheap to get younger, and that may be what he has to do next to be able to sort of keep keep this going. But he had that window where guys like uh, where where Cabrera and Verlander they were getting paid a lot, but they were in the prime of their careers. They're both now over that peak. They're they're over that point. They're going to start um, declining from this point on. So. I think what he's been doing, instead of trying to sustain the Tigers long term, I think he's really focused on, you know, we should have won one by now. He and Mike Illich have to be looking at this going, we should have won a world championship by now. It's kind of unconscionable that we haven't. It's been bad luck or for whatever reason. So he's, you know, he's he's twisting knobs and churning, turning left and right, doing everything he can, you know, hollowing out the farm system, trading away all his prospects to bring talent in, to keep, to prop up the major league roster, to get that one championship so that he can then do the things that I think he knows he has to do to, you know, secure the future of the franchise. We got a question from a listener named Andy, and this was back in November after the Victor Martinez deal. I've been saving it since then, and Andy said, I've seen many commenters assert that the Tigers are willing to make bad long-term deals in order to accumulate players for the near term, both because their window is currently open and because the owner is getting pretty old. That's the only reason that I can understand for re-signing Victor Martinez. For example, it looks like the Tigers are going to be the Phillies 2.0 in 2017 and 2018. However, I can't reconcile this with the Miguel Cabrera deal because they would have still had him for one more year at a lower price and could have used the money to sign, say, Andrew Miller. If you are going to go all-in for 2014 and 2015 and are going to suck in 2017 and 2018, why not go all the way in, or why not backload the deals so that they have more room to sign good players right now? So you're asking me that? I'm asking you that. Yeah, were, yeah. were, were those extensions a way to try to prop the window open that won't necessarily work? 
Yeah, I think so. I think I, I, I still don't really understand the unneeded extension for, for Cabrera, but, you know, uh, Andy makes a good point. If you truly were just looking at this one year, you know, you're going in this one year, you're all in, this is the year we're going to win the championship. Yeah, maybe you don't do that. Maybe you use the money to to bring in, you know, as many higher guns as you can to try and get into try and win the World Series that year. But I think that he's trying to extend the window. I don't think that he's looking at one year and saying this is the year. I think he's looking at, well, you know, we'll sign Cabrera, we'll sign Verlander. And this is when when Verlander, before he had his really bad year last year, the, he sort of pictured these guys as continuing to be the core of the franchise, and they still are. Um, and so, you know, we want two or three or four more spins at the championship wheel. And he thought, I think that that's what he was buying with those contracts. And that may be the case. I mean, there's a difference. I've, I've heard other people sort of compare the Tiger situation to the Phillies. The difference here is the guys that he's given money to are, are really, really good ball players. I mean, there's a chance. I mean, none of these guys are Ryan Howard. There's a chance that, that Cabrera, even though he's injured, he's a generational batting talent. He may still be a really, really good hitter when he's 37, 38 years old. Mm-hmm. Verlander may, he's thrown a lot of innings. He Even for that money, he might still be just a solid number two. But at least I, I, it's hard for us to picture him completely falling off the cliff. I think that the players that he's committed money to are better players than the, than some of the teams that 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 have really gotten themselves into a bind have have committed that money to. Right, and and although Victor Martinez's immediate injury following the signing seemed to confirm the worst fears about resigning someone like Victor Martinez, there is still a good amount of young talent on this team. I mean, if you look at the the lineup, it's not all mid-30s guys. You've got Nick Castellanos, 23. Jose Iglesias is back. He's 25. J.D. Martinez is still in his prime. Cespedes is not old. So Anthony Ghost, I I should also mention, is going to be 25. So there is a good amount of young talent. Is Is it that the ceilings of this young talent are not perceived to be as high as as the guys who are on the downside? Yeah, that's at least from my perspective, I think that's the case. Yeah, there are some young guys. The the guy the young guy that I have, you know, um, some belief may become a much better player is Castellanos. I think that he's got a fairly high ceiling. Um, he didn't show all that much last year, but he, you know, he could be a really solid talent at third base. Iglesias at shortstop has a great glove, obviously, and having him all year, if he's healthy, will definitely help the Tigers. But he's really only ever hit once in his life. He had that one year um, when the, the Tigers traded for him when he actually used his bat as a weapon. Other than that, he was kind of Ray Ordonia's V2, right? So, I mean, a useful player, but not a guy that I picture being a, a huge core of the team. Mm-hmm. Martinez, I think a lot of us, me included, want to see him do it again. The, what he did last year really came out of nowhere. And, you know, he had a really high BABIP. I, I don't want to just use that as the excuse for everything. But there will probably be some regression. And it's hard. I, I guess I don't think of him as being, you know, uh, someone that's going to be making a lot of all-star teams. Um, Ghost is a guy that there, there have been questions similar to Ordonia's whether or not he's going to be able to hit. I was reading the other day that, uh, that, um, he, the, the, the team is happy with the fact that they think he's, he's showing a lot of speed, which the team doesn't have. And that's definitely beneficial. But the, you know, if they're going to grade his value on how many runs he scores and how many bases he steals and ignore the fact that he's getting on base at a you know, 270 clip, that he's not going to be helping the team that much. So I think there are some young guys, but they're not. They're not guys that you can kind of see growing into the core of a championship team. If they're going to win a championship team, it's going to be with the big names. It's going to be the big names in the rotation. It's going to be the big names in the middle of the order. And it's going to be some of the big names in the bullpen actually learning how to get a few guys out this year. So the there's this kind of common belief out there that seems to get repeated anytime the Tigers sign somebody that Mike Illich, the owner, is he's 80, he's going to be 86 years old this year. And he just really wants to win a World Series. And he doesn't care what it looks like for the franchise in 10 years if he wins one because he's Mike Illich. He's 86 years old. And so I wonder, A, do you buy that narrative at all? But more importantly, they're carrying $170 million payroll uh, right now. They have been one of the top, I think, four or five payrolls for the last few years. Uh, And so if this narrative is correct, it would kind of imply that, that the Tigers should actually uh, by their fundamentals have a lower payroll than that, that like they're not actually capable of spending this much forever. Uh, if that's the case and somebody else maybe owns the team in five years or has dramatically different priorities in five years, does this all look even worse than we're kind of, uh, uh acknowledging right now? 
I think that's true. Yeah, I think that you're right. The fundamentals of this team, uh, you know, playing in Detroit and you you don't picture them as being a franchise that can sustain top five payrolls uh, indefinitely. Um, and, and I think that the owner, Mike Illich, is willing to lose a little money, spend more money than maybe he's taking in um, in search of a championship. Um, and not every owner is going to be willing to do that. So I think you're exactly right that at some point when you look at 20, you know, 2018, 2019, 2020, when you're, when you're paying $30 million to Miguel Cabrera and he may not be playing uh, particularly well, yeah, I, you, you can kind of see the possibility of it being a Todd Helton contract in Colorado where there's not really anything you can do with him and, and there's nowhere else to spend your money. Um, but as long as Mike Illich is willing to keep the payroll at that level, they can keep trying to, you know, they can use stacks of cash to hold that window up a little bit longer. And that's kind of the visual that I have for it. They just keep putting money in to hold that window, which wants to keep crashing down. And and that's, that's what they've been doing the last couple of years. So when I get asked about this year's Pocota projections. The, the one I get asked most often about is Corey Kluber on the pessimistic side. Uh, and the one I get asked about on the optimistic side most often is Justin Verlander, who uh, the decline seems to be pretty obvious and apparent. Uh, and yet, uh, Pocota projects him to be, I think, a top 10 pitcher this year. Um, uh, still a very, very good pitcher and, and more of a bounce back than a, a continuance of the trend. What do you think of Verlander's outlook? I think me personally, I think he's going to be better than he was last year. I mean, his he's already said that the curveball is in the best shape of his life. It's my favorite best shape of his life story of spring training so far. His curveball is looking better. You know, the the story came out about him him being injured, him having the core surgery, and that that the core muscle surgery that affected him all season. Um, there may be some truth to that. I, I don't think I think that the Justin Verlander that we in our mind's eye are going to remember forever. I don't think we're going to see that Justin Verlander again. I think that the velocity in this fastball is gone. Um, I mean, not that not that throwing 93 is nothing, but he's not going to be throwing a lot of 97, 98 mile an hour fastballs consistently, um, and that means that you know his his margin of error drops a little bit more. So I think it's I can't I don't really picture him being an ace again. I picture him being a really solid number two, a really solid number three. Um Pakoda, I can understand, you know, looking at that long period of dominance with this one blip, looking at it numerically, going, oh yeah, there I, I see no reason why he can't bounce back, but he doesn't seem like the same pitcher. Uh, Pakoda isn't really looking at his velocity drop. So I don't know. That's that's my take on it. All right, and so um, so a couple weeks ago I wrote about the Tigers not upgrading their bullpen, uh, which had the headline, What the heck, Tigers? Um, and it really does seem super strange to me, like the most mysterious uh, story of the offseason seems to be that they didn't do anything with their bullpen because it was the most kind of obvious or at least the most talked about need that maybe any team had uh, going into the offseason. And it's actually really easy to get a lot of headlines by signing bullpen guys for six million dollars and not even really moving the needle that much so what the heck why didn't the Tigers sign some relievers well I think they believe that the the guys that they have are actually better than they pitched and I think one of the things they're hanging their hat on and I think that they're they're a little foolish for doing this but Bruce Rondon is going to be uh is going to be in the bullpen this year they they think very highly of him maybe he can be the the, the closer he throws very hard um I'm not sure whether I'm convinced that he's going to be a dominant bullpen arm but they 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 don't expect Joe Nathan to be as bad perhaps as he was last year although um, I kind of expect him to be as bad as he was last year but they look through there they go they've got they've got Joe Kim Soria there there are names in there that you can maybe expect to, to throw a little bit better um, I, I'm guessing that and I would think that they're just thinking that here in you know, small sample size theater there's going to be a few of these guys um, that are going to have better years than they had last year and so if the, just through regression the bullpen is going to get better and they needed to spend money and, and attention other places but I agree I, if I were them I would have brought in at least one more arm just to shake things up just to tell people that I noticed that there was a problem and that I cared. All right, so give us your prediction for the 2015 Tigers. How many wins? Where will they finish? So, um, so I'm really mindful of uh, the post last year of the the gentleman who went and uh, statistically sampled how we predicted things compared <laughs> to what what Pakota said. Uh-huh. So I really don't want to overpredict a team, and yet I feel like I have to. 
Um, I, I don't think the Tigers, even though I, I, I can see their, their window getting close to closing, I think they're better than an 83-win team. Um, but I don't think they're that much better. So I'm actually saying 86 wins and uh, coming in second and maybe not making the playoffs. Where do you think that they will be projected a year from now? A lot of that depends. Uh, well, this is the obvious answer. A lot of that depends on the offseason. Do they say? Or do they go all in again? Do they spend all kinds of money to to keep David Price? Do um, are the old guys still healthy and effective? One of the things I worry about this year is you have all these people with with long injury histories. You just feel like there's going to be a year when two or three or four of them are all going to miss half the season. Um, once that happens, their window closes, I think. But if they all make it through the season and they, they win 86 games and they sign Price, well, they'll probably be predicted for 82, 83, 84 wins again. All right. Well, thank you as always, Ken. Ah, thank you. Talk to you guys later. All right. You can find Ken Funk on twitter he's at ken funk that's f-u-n-c-k or you can just open up any bp annual since 2010 to a random page and there's a pretty good chance that the words you see there are written by ken all right so stay tuned after the musical break for the interview with sahadav sharma and jason beck the tigers beat writer for mlb.com Look out the window and see. I look out the window and see. But I get the feeling it doesn't see me. Welcome to the second half of the Effectively Wild podcast. I'm Sahadev Sharma, associate editor for Baseball Prospectus. With me is Jason Beck, Tigers beat writer for MLB.com. We're going to preview the 2015 Detroit Tigers. Thanks for joining me, Jason. Hope all is well. Yeah, doing good. Thanks for having me on. No problem. Thanks, uh, thanks for joining me. Uh, I guess the uh, first thing I'm curious about, uh, actually our editor-in-chief, Sam Miller, wrote a bit about this and had uh, some interesting explanations. I thought they were all pretty valid, but why I, – I, you could probably say this uh, you know, every few months, uh, even during the season or uh, you know, every season for the last three years. What's What are the issues with the bullpen and why the lack of movement – in the off season with the bullpen? Well, I mean, it takes a little bit of a explanation, which I guess makes it a good thing. It just was a lengthy podcast. <laughs> uh, I think part of it is kind of a long time philosophy on Dave Dombrowski's part that reliever performances can be turbulent from one year to the next. And then it's hard to look at these guys whose performance in a straight line. I think the long-term contracts have been built out recently that suggest that, that other teams think differently, at least some of them. But what these guys are looking at in Detroit is they don't believe that what, what they saw from Joaquin Soria last year in granted a small sample size is indicative of, of what to expect from Joaquin Soria going forward. Um, they see improvement in the second half numbers from Donate last year. I think aside from the stuff that make it make them believe that he's at least worth another shot in Closer's role. I, I think there's a there's a belief that Ian Crow, given the age and the stuff, is on an upward trajectory. Um yeah, there is a little bit of involvement on the uh I guess on the lefty relief front, that they, they felt like they've been interested in Tom Gozlani for a while, and I think the, the opportunity to get him at you know a, a pretty reasonable price, given you know some of the other contracts that were built out. I think when you compare Gozlani's contract to Zach Duke, it almost looks like a deep discount uh, because it is basically. But besides that, realistically, and actually, I've been telling people this for most of the spring. A lot of the improvement, in my opinion, from this bullpen is going to hinge on Bruce Rondon. And mm-hmm. if they can get him back and get a full year out of him. You know, this is the guy that they've really missed the last two postseasons. That shutdown reliever with overpower and stuff who, despite the inexperience, just has a raw fastball and grasp of secondary pitches to defy matchups. They, they really needed him. In the ALCS in 2013, late May 2013, he, he overpowered David Ortiz for a strikeout, which I think it was like a 
fastball to register to like 101 or 102 on the radar down there. And of course, who comes back to haunt him in that, in that, that postseason with David Ortiz? They didn't have him at all last year. And while you know, they boosted up Java Chamberlain to a bigger role than they had planned on, they never really filled in behind him. And I think the lack of depth caught up with him in the second half, even after adding Joaquin Soria. But that young guy, and they really, to me, they've they've struggled to add that relief help from within. Those young relievers that you see other organizations being able to benefit from the young relievers with the raw, great stuff. Ron Dunn screams that if he's healthy. Now, you got to see if he's healthy going forward. If he's that type of guy, they've got a couple other guys who have that potential, but they might not be quite ready yet. They might be ready at some point during the season. So I think when you combine those factors, that's their, that's how they were looking at it in the offseason. But I think also when you look at Dave Dombrowski's history, he's never been one to go big on contracts for non-closing relievers. Uh, I think what you saw, you know, as far back as um, 2009, really, I think he's still kind of going philosophy. But, Given the unpredictability, they weren't willing to go long term on Brandon Wine. Like after he got the uh, offer from Houston after the year nine, I think that, that was a rare instance when they were even willing to go a multi year offer for a setup guy. And the one time they really defied it was with Joaquin Benoit. And they took a chance on him, that, thinking that the comeback season he was playing in Tampa Bay. Really, the sign of things to come, and she really stabilized the bullpen uh, for the next few years. Goodness knows where it would have been in 2013 for the regular team without him. No one ever able to move him into that uh, closers role after Rob Dillon showed he wasn't right. But you know, it's a complicated answer, but hopefully, I kind of explained it. And it would be more standpoint. No, I think it, it deserves that type of uh, long answer because it's, it's. I mean, bullpens in general are so volatile, and and uh, that there's there's various reasons, and you hit on uh, pretty much all of them. Why it, it it can it totally makes sense to me why you don't you don't make a lot of moves, but uh, for a bullpen that was pretty rough and seems like it's rough every year, but it's uh, you could argue that they've already made their moves with uh, adding Rendon off, hopefully healthy Rendon, and and Soria was a midseason pickup, so it. it makes sense uh, a guy you know one of the best pitchers uh, over the last half decade or so is Justin Verlander but uh, you know I was I guess I was kind of surprised at uh, you know sometimes we overreact to uh, greats taking a step back uh, and 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 you know I think maybe that's the case maybe even with Miguel Cabrera but with Verlander you know his his velocity has dropped uh, over the past few years the K's were below 200 for the first time since two, 2008 lowest innings total since 2008 i believe his era plus was something like 88 so just not a, a rough season not the type of justin verlander we expect it, does he need to return to dominant form can he is that even reasonable to assume that and even if he can't what, what kind of pitcher can we expect from justin verlander i, I guess it depends on on what you would consider the dominant form stuff wise is is the justin verlander who's throwing 99 100 in like the seventh or eighth inning, is that guy coming back? I, I just can't see it, and I don't think the Tigers expect that to happen either. You know, it's hard to tell in Justin's head what he expects. I think he would love to have that. I'm sure he would love to have that. But this kind of has the feel of the transition to the next chapter of Verlander's career, where you start to see the transition from that overpowering. I guess, you know, that high strikeout pitcher into a guy that has you know, a different mix of stuff. I don't know if it's if it's full bore quite yet, that transition, but you get the sense that we're in the, and at the very least, we're in the early stages of it, where that mix of pitches that he's had for the last couple of years starts to get used in, in different sequences. And you start to see him Maybe go to that breaking ball more. Maybe see more of that slider setting up the fastball as opposed to necessarily going to the fastball always when uh, when he's in trouble. Uh, it's there, and I think 
she didn't get enough credit for a couple years there for you know, kind of that nuanced approach she had as far as stirring out that fastball in the low 90 and then picking it up the second and third time through the orders. You know, now I, I think we're going to have to see that low 90 fastball that he started out with. I think you start to expect that more often now and you expect to see that second and third time through. So the sequences are going to have to be different. And I think the secondary pitches are, are going to have to be more consistent for than they were last year. And I think to that extent, he gets it. Uh, he spent his first start spring training really working on that, that breaking ball, which was always been you know, a barometer, at least for me, to what kind of outing he was going to have. If he can spot the breaking ball, if he can either freeze guys on it or, or get some swings and misses, but if he can spot in the zone, some sort of combination of that, and that's usually a good barometer for what kind of outing he's going to have. I get the sense he's looking at that more of a, a swing and miss pitch, which to me suggests he's starting to, to make that transition, at least in his mind, that he's going to have to look more to those pitches for the swings and misses that he used to get from that fastball. You know, I mentioned Miguel Cabrera there. Uh, he, you know, he wasn't MVP uh, Miguel Cabrera that we got used to, but he was still really, really strong last year. You know, he had he's he seems like he's always banged up, but he always plays a ton of games. Is is he? Uh, can we expect a season a hundred percent healthy? And and are, are we going to? Should we expect to see a little bit of a downtrend from him? He's you know it's thirty one and or thirty two, I guess. Uh, he's getting up there in age. Is it time to for us to kind of reduce our expectations for Miguel Cabrera? I guess I'm skeptical that we're going to see a 100% healthy Cabrera just because, you know, even if he's fully healed from the uh, foot and the ankle surgeries, which, by the way, what he was able to do down the stretch on essentially a broken foot is amazing when you think about it, even with the diminished power, just that hitting ability and moving around with a stress fracture in his foot. You know, I, I know people in the uh, Tigers organization were amazed when, uh, you know, when that came out, when the doctor found the stress fracture. You knew about the bone spur. Mm -hmm. But even if he's fully healed from that and he comes back, you know, around opening day or or mid-April, the fact that he didn't get that full off-season of workouts, I I think you have to expect that's going to have some impact on what he can do. I think that that's there. You know, the question I guess I'll be looking for is how much of that power is there? Are we going to see the 30, 35, 40 homer Cabrera, or are we going to see something more like the Cabrera of last year where the home run power is down, but you see more of the doubles? And if his foot's healthy and he can move around, you might see that 50 double Cabrera again more likely than before you see the power come back as far as the home run power. And you know that might not necessarily be the end of the world. That might be more of a harbinger of what to expect from him when he, you know, he ages into his mid-30s. I think he's still, if he can get healthy, he's still got some good power years left. But to me, and, and I disagree with some people on that, I think the bat's going to be there longer than the power is there. I just think that man, natural swing, that, that hand-eye coordination, that's not going to age so much as the, the, uh, the power output might. Because when you look at the numbers, it's that batting average that was always consistent. Like the, you know, the power really peaked as he got into the, the late 20s. It was always good and it was consistent, but it, it became like elite level as he got into his prime years. I think that will start to dip before the average ever does. Uh, what's the status of Victor Martinez? He's uh, obviously had the meniscus injury, and uh, I, I guess he's on the road to recovery. But it, did they expect him ready for opening day, or is that is that uh, just wishful thinking? I think he's got a better chance of being ready for opening day than Cabrera does, just because the nature of the surgeries. Mm-hmm. The timetable was a little friendlier towards opening day return, making it seem a little bit more realistic. I think he's he's at. Uh, about four weeks right now, and uh, you know he just started taking batting practice on the field. He's going to have to start moving around, uh, you know, being able to run, obviously. But the fact that he's had, uh, basically a full-time DH at this point means he doesn't have to quite get the same type of mobility back that Cabrera does. So 
at his age, yeah, it's a little trickier having that surgery, but everything I've heard from, uh, from medical people suggests that the impact of that type of surgery in, in the meniscus injury is going to be more long-term than short-term. That's another guy, though, that would be interesting to see what the power is like when he comes back. Because really, that, that, uh, that power punch he had last year seemed to come so much from that lower body. That quick bat that was always there. And, and I think if, he could, if they did that quick bat in that clutch run production, I think they would take it. Uh, whether it's for anywhere near that type of power again or not. With the rotation, you know, it's it's a different look right now, obviously, from what uh, what it started with last year and even ended with last year. We don't see Porcello and Scherzer obviously left. Uh, the back end with Green and uh, Alfredo Simone, how, how important is it to see a repeat from Simone? It, I mean, I think he's he's kind of maybe he's kind of the key with that rotation being being strong still, and maybe even the the health of Sanchez. I know uh, there have been some scares over the, the over the course of the year uh, with with his shoulder, I believe. Right. Yeah. Well, the shoulder was a scare in spring training uh, last year, and then the injuries that bothered him during the season. There was a blister that popped and ended up leading to a DL split of all things. And then he had the, uh, a weird pectoral muscle injury. I think it was on a pickoff throw or something like that late in the year that basically ruined his regular season and left him in a, you know, that weird relief role for the uh, division series. That, that was much debated. To me, I think a healthy Sanchez is almost as big of a key as a bounce back season from Verlander for these guys because of what he meant for the for this team in 2013, mm-hmm. the American League ERA champ that year, being able to deliver high strikeout outings. Really, in every sense, he was a frontline starter that really didn't get the credit he deserved that year because of what Scherzer was able to do. Well, now Scherzer's not around. They need somebody to fill a frontline role, even with Price, even if Burbank's back to us on most of what he was. If, if Scherzer's, I mean, if uh, Sanchez is healthy and if he's got that full spring training to, to get everything in order, I think he's got a better shot to be that frontline starter they need throughout the top half of their rotation than, than the other guys. Um, Simon, though, to me, is going to be very intriguing to watch. On the one hand, the, the weird splits in those numbers from first half to second half, you, know, you wonder what was going on in the second half. And, and, you wonder, well, if national hitters were able to catch up with him in the second half, what does that mean for his turn distance in American League? But on the other hand, he's got a bigger ballpark to pitch, and I can mm-hmm. already get to talking to him, and he's very intrigued by what he can do with a, a bigger ballpark. He can get away, in theory, with some pitches that maybe he wasn't able to get away with in Cincinnati. Uh, even though I know the... Uh, or the metrics in the ballpark factors for Comerica Park suggests it's not as pitcher friendly as it once was. And part of that's because of the guys that Tigers have had hitting. When you had Victor Martinez and Miguel Cabrera and, and Prince Fielder over the years, well, I, I think that affects kind of the ballpark factors to, to some degree. I think it's still a big ballpark that, that pitchers can utilize it if they, uh, if they know how to uh, take advantage of it. Simon might be that guy. He might not have to be necessarily so round ball reliant. Shane Green, you know, it's you know, are the major league numbers that he posted last year real, or is it more the minor league numbers? There, Tigers people love the stuff they saw from him. Now, granted, they saw two of his better outings you know, all last year. You know, when he faced him and he was able to, to back it up. You know, not just at one time, but back it up again. But the, the see a little bit. Rick Porcello in him with that ground ball style. Now, let's see how he can build off of that and kind of expand his work. The opportunity to work with a pitching coach like Jeff Jones should present some upside for him if, if he, uh, takes, he takes the teachings and goes to work on, on becoming more than simply a ground ball pitch. This team has, a, you know, it, it's the... They're obviously it's an aging team, and they've been in the playoffs, and they've just missed out on that World Series championship. Is this is there any chance? Would it have to be a really bad start uh, first few months for Dombrowski to start selling off pieces and kind of kind of going in a different direction, trying to uh, you know maybe even rebuild, or 
or is that just is that completely off the table? I'd be surprised if they did something like that. I think it would, it would take something very severe, but I also think when you look at the guys they could trade, Verlander's contracts would be really difficult to deal. Sanchez's contract, while more friendlier to other clubs, they're going to have to be convinced of the help. You know, Victor Martinez going to be difficult to trade his age. Miguel Cabrera, that contract, you know, probably no chance, even if he is hitting in peak form. David Price, there you get into a debate. Are you better off trading him and getting what you can for, you know, from a team willing to do a, a late season rental, or are you better off keeping him and getting the pick? Mm-hmm. Now, I, I know Tigers people were pretty happy to get the compensation pick back for Scherzer. This is a team that won a few years without any sort of first-round pick. But back when they were adding you know, the likes of Victor Martinez and Prince Fielder, now they're giving uh, David Chad and uh, you know, their Andrew Stone department two first-rounders this year. So they want to see what, what they can do there to restock the farm system. And, this is a farm system that needs some depth to it. If you, if you have a deep draft, now I almost wonder if they would rather, unless they get overwhelmed by a deal, if they would rather take the extra pick and try to rebuild that way, unless they find somebody young who's cost-controlled and can help them sooner than, than they uh, than say, a college pitcher in the mid to late first round might be able to help. You know, I, I think I saw this on Twitter. Someone suggested, uh, are the Tigers heading down a, a similar path as the Phillies? Uh, you know, Dombrowski's really proven to be one of the better uh, GMs mm-hmm. as far as winning major league trades, as far as pro scouting goes, and he rarely loses a trade. What do we need to see from the Tigers for them to avoid a similar fate of what looks like a, a full hardcore rebuild for the Phillies that could take, you know, a half a decade before they see results. Maybe that's unfair to them, but it feels like it could be a while before the Phillies are back on a winning track. Right, right. It's I, I think it's twofold. First of all, you know, they've got to be able to uh, you know, get younger, more cost-controlled players into the mix. Not just guys you can throw in there at replacement level, but impact players. I think in that aspect, they're counting on Nick Castellanos to, to make a jump this year. Mm-hmm. You know, for, surely to be a better third baseman than he was last year, and, and Brad Austin has been you know, upfront about that part. But also to start to show that development offensively, where he can be more of a consistent contributor for these guys. Uh, I think that's huge for them. Uh, He's the first step there. I think, you know, if they can get another outfitter in the mix, whether it's Stephen Moy, who has a ton of upside but also has a ton of risk, mm-hmm. you know, surprising range of potential from, from such a young player. Uh, again, a Fields, who uh, this organization still believes, who's still pretty young for being a guy who's about to most likely repeat a triple A. Um, no, James McCann behind the plate. These are the guys that have to work in. They have to get something out of which is it's kind of funny to say from from the team that's so annually ranked near the, you know, the uh, bottom group among uh, farm systems, but has still been able to churn out uh, um, trade bait here and there, and also be able to uh, get some guys who can seemingly have the chance to make a difference. You know, whether it's through their international uh, scouting or, or through uh, you know, some of the uh, draft picks they've kind of uh, overperformed on. The second part is, I, I think, where the Phillies have really been sunk by guys falling to injury. You look at the, the guys that the Tigers have, they're not necessarily as big of a risk. You know, you know, you know Cabrera's a risk, obviously. Victor Martinez is. But Verlander's problems haven't been healthy it's generally been, core muscle surgery aside, it's generally been with him ineffectiveness. So you think he's the, the problems with Anibal Sanchez, aside from the shoulder scare last spring, have not been arm related. I think you can be a little bit more optimistic about it, but bounce back from those guys than necessarily you would be from Cliff Lee, whose career could be at a crossroads right now. Um, from a Ryan Howard who's been dogged by injuries recently, from from even you know say a Chase Utley, you know, guys like that, it's I don't think it's quite at that extent. You know, there's a risk that it could, 
Child support has definitely quite yet with the Tigers. I think there's still a chance that you know, that the guys that they've locked up to these big mega contracts are still going to be effective for for a number of more years before you start having to worry about that type of stuff. Miguel Cabrera, for all his injury risks, has shown that even when he plays hurt, he's still an elite player, unlike Ryan Howard. Uh, so Verlander. For all his issues, again, it's managed to stay healthy, managed to take the ball every five days, which even in itself, if he can stay even just reasonably effective, is a must for these guys. You know, uh, the Tigers obviously they're not getting the same buzz that they they have in the in the previous seasons as far as that uh, AL Central goes. The White Sox made a ton of moves in the off season, uh, significantly improved. The Indians are uh, kind of a sabermetric darling. Uh, a lot of people seem to be jumping on that bandwagon. How are how's the team and how's Osmus reacting to that? Do they just ignore that stuff? Do they use it as motivation? Is it something that you know it's a chip on their shoulder? Then they could say, okay, this is well, we're going to go out there and prove everyone wrong. What's what's the reaction to uh, people kind of looking down on the Tigers? Well, at least publicly, they're saying that they like kind of you know, being this team that's seemingly getting overlooked. They like not being the being this team with heavy ex- expectations. Uh, you know, that's what Brad Ausmus is saying. I think to some degree that's what Verlander is saying. Um, but that said, it's you know, I think a lot is going to be made of how this team starts out the season because there there is a pretty heavy schedule of division games early on against teams that are perceived as the competition. You know, they, they've got an opening week trip to Cleveland. They've got some games against the White Sox. They have a late April, early May stretch where I think it's two series against the Royals in the span of a week and a half, which includes, I, I think, a nationally televised Sunday night game somewhere along the road there. How this team looks in, in uh, early to mid-May, I think it's going to say a ton of, about how this team is perceived as far as their chances go. Um, in that aspect, it's going to be interesting if Cabrera and or Victor Martinez aren't ready, how is that going to play into how this perception goes? And, and if they have a slow start because Cabrera and Victor Martinez aren't ready, are they going to be hinging everything on those two coming back, or are they going to be looking at some of these guys that are trying to fill the voids, being able to improve as the year goes on? You know, whether it's Cespedes getting more comfortable, or you know, one thing we haven't discussed is you know, can JD Martinez repeat what he did in uh, 2014? So I think there's a lot that goes into that. But uh, you know, at least publicly, they seem to like it, but. You know, this team, there's still a certain amount of um, you know confidence slash cockiness with, with some of these guys, but I think they still probably need on that. Before I let you go, Jason, uh, this this doesn't need to be the key for the Tiger season, but but something that you as a reporter, someone that's going to be covering this team on a daily basis, what are you most looking forward to? What storyline, what event with the 2015 Tigers are are you most excited to write about and cover? Um, you know, it's, you always look for great stories. You know, is there like a Cinderella story in this group? You know, I don't know about that. But I guess it's how is this team going to fit into the, the narrative of how we look at this, this period in Tigers history? Uh, I was around when the team lost 119 games in, 2000, in 2003. I was around to see you know the turnaround to the World Series in 2006 and then getting back to the World Series in 2012. I've seen this franchise trans formed from, you know, a league doormat at its worst to now a team that's perennially in the conversation among the World Series contenders. And now you look and you see, well, whether you think they're at the end of their window or not, you still look at this team as a franchise that's trying to extend their window of contention. What are the next steps towards doing that? And I know Dave Dombrowski looks at this is the key to being to uh, I think how his era is perceived as much of a World Series is you know, can you keep this team in the conversation among league contenders at the same time as the rest of the division starts getting young talent developing and starts developing heavy, heavier competition for you even for division that to me is that's what I'm looking forward to, to see and you know 
whether the window was closing, you have to have this team extended and can they extend it for a few more years to where when that TV contract uh, nears a renegotiation point, can they cash in on that like, like other franchises have? If they can, then this goes to being, well, a team that overachieved for its perceived market size to a team that you can put into the conversation among bigger market clubs. Okay. Uh, that, that, yeah, that's definitely interesting. I'm, I'm going to definitely follow to see if the Tigers can keep that window open for 2015 and extend it even further. Uh, Jason, why don't you let the listeners know uh, where they can find you on Twitter and where they can read your work? Well, on Twitter, I'm at, at Jason. So my last name and then my first name, uh, no underscore and that's just straight uh, at Jason. Uh, we're at uh, MLB.com, destroytigers.com, um, uh, obviously, but uh, also my blog, which is uh, beck.mlblogs.com. All right, that's Jason Beck, Tigers beat writer for MLB.com. I'm Sahadev Sharma. You can follow me on Twitter at Sahadev Sharma. Jason, thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it. Always love doing the podcast. Thanks for having me on. All right, that's the Tigers preview. Thank you for listening. You can join our Facebook group now with more than 2,500 members at facebook.com slash groups slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Send us emails for next week at podcast at baseballperspectives.com and support our sponsor, the Play Index, by going to baseballreference.com, subscribing to the Play Index using the coupon code BP, and getting the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. We've got one more preview coming up this week. We'll be back tomorrow with the San Diego Padres. <laughs> uh, I can't fight you. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Squeaky laugh is scary when you have a cold. <clears throat> All right. Drop. Saddle down, open up shop. Whoa. Whoa. That's a rough rider's roll. Stop. Drop. Shut down, open up shop. <laughs>